2 Corinthians chapter number 7. We're going to look at verses 10 uh, through 13 together today. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. It reads this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Uh, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourself innocent in the matter, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Let's pray. Father, we ask now your blessing on your word today. I pray that you would help me just to clearly communicate. And Spirit, we ask you to do the work of of, of investigating and changing our hearts today. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we have your word to go to today. And uh, we pray for our, our kids as they're downstairs and they're doing the same thing. Uh, they're going to be engaging your truth, that it would work mightily in their hearts as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are going to talk about grief. Uh, grief is a feeling and emotion that can range from uh, slight annoyance, I think this time of year, of Charlie Brown's classic line, good grief every time he's annoyed by something that he's done or other people have done. But it can move into deep sorrow, a sorrow that can consume us, it can enshroud us like a thick fog. We most often associate grief with loss. It can be death, the loss of a loved one. It can be a divorce and other broken relationships that in our lives, difficult trials and seasons of life that we go through. But grief can also result from our sin. Uh, it can also result from the sin of others that they might commit against us. Uh, when, when I speak harshly to my wife, it grieves her. When I speak harshly to my wife, it grieves me. I feel it. She feels it. We feel it together because I am convicted by the Holy Spirit. I am grieved. Well, today we are not going to focus on the grief that we experience when we suffer loss. And I know that there are some in the room that have recently experienced that loss. And you're in those particular stages and the struggle of grief in your life right now. And I I do want to point you towards um, a text that we looked at a couple of years ago in our Summer in the Psalm series. And uh, me and Aaron will work together to try to dig this one up and get this available. But Psalm 13. Uh, the psalm of lament, because it's a helpful guide for us as we move through those, those seasons of sorrow together. We'll try to make that available to you, get it on the website, and send it out via text. But instead today, we're going to follow the spirit of the text that we're in, which is about the grief that we experience when we're confronted with our sin. That's what Paul's writing about. That's what the letter to the Corinthians has been about. Uh, let, me, let me give you just a, a, a quick personal example. This week, I've been reading through 1 John. And I got to 1 John, uh, and I believe it was there in chapter 2 where it said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in it. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not of the Father, but that's of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know, as I read that, I was grieved. Because sometimes I just really love this world. And I love the things of this world more than I love the Father. And, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a grief that comes when we're interacting with God's truth and the way in which we're to live and we recognize in that moment that's not where I am. There's a grief that should overcome us. 2,000 years ago, the Corinthians were reading a letter that was written by Paul, delivered by Titus. Paul called it a sorrowful letter because in it he pointed out a series of transgressions that they had committed against him, that they were committing against each other, and most importantly, they had committed against the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we learned last week, that letter resulted in a grief in the Corinthians' hearts. The Corinthians were grieved, uh, and that grief that they experienced ultimately led them back to the Lord Jesus Christ and led them back to good relations with the Apostle Paul. In verse 9, Paul describes their grief as a godly grief. Look at that verse with me. He says, as it is, I rejoice not uh, because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. But then as we read further into verse 10 today already, he warns of a dangerous and a deadly alternative to godly grief, worldly grief. These two can often be intermixed. These two can often be confused in our minds and in our actions. And so today we're going to work to distinguish between these, these two types of grief that we often experience in our lives. And so I do want to begin with godly grief. In verse 10, Paul writes that godly grief is a grief that produces repentance. And repentance is what leads us further on to salvation. And so let's pull this apart for a moment. Grief over our sin is meant to produce repentance in our hearts. What does it mean to repent? What is repentance? What does it look like to repent? It's a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It's a, it's a change in the way we're thinking. When we are repentant, we, we are now saying the same thing about our sin and our actions that God says about our sin and our actions. And that change of thinking and that change of heart leads to a change of behavior. It changes the way we live. God says we turn from our sin, we turn from our idols. But what do we turn to? What do we repent to? We turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that action, turning from my sin, turning toward Christ, is the way of salvation. It's the way that leads to life. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says this, he says, you, you turned to God from idols to serve the living 
and the true God. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.9. And so in this instance, Paul, he preached to the Thessalonians of, of their sin of idolatry. And the Thessalonians were grieved as they heard Paul speaking about their idolatry. And their grief then caused them to turn from their idols and to turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. For most of us in this room, we, we get this. This is the experience that we've probably had thousands upon thousands of times in our life. We sin, we're grieved, we repent. This is what Paul sees happening in the Corinthians. He, his letter grieved them, and their grief led them to repent, to change their minds, to change their behavior, to change the way in which they're living. By the way, that's also the primary goal of preaching week in and week out. When we open the Word of God, what are we doing? We're unleashing God's truth. And, and, and if it connects with you, and if you're realizing, oh, that, that's not the way I'm living, that's not uh, what I'm doing, I'm not being faithful in following Jesus, the, the goal of what we're doing from here is to grieve your heart so that you will repent, so you'll be more faithful in following Jesus. Why? Because that's the way that leads life and we want you to have life and life more abundantly and so week after week we open up God's word and we engage you with it but their repentance isn't the only result of their godly grief in verse 11 Paul actually lists seven additional results that come from godly grief the first one is eagerness in my opinion here the ESV doesn't translate this well uh, they use the word earnest on this first word, eager on the next word, but, but eager is a better translation. Their godly grief meant that they were eager to make things right with God and with Paul. In other words, that godly grief leads to a, 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 an action with no hesitation. Uh, there's no, no making excuses. There's no time to blame other people. I just want to make things right. I'm eager to restore what my sin has broken. In the SV, the next line reads this, an eagerness to clear yourself. This is the word apologia from which we get our term apologetics, which means to defend. And so more than likely what Paul means to describe here is that the Corinthians, they now wish to prove themselves to Paul. They wish to prove to Paul that they are truly repented. They wish to prove to Paul that the godly grief that they've experienced is work. A truly repentant person will go out of their way to show that they've sincerely changed their attitude, that they've sincerely changed their actions. They're not dismissive of others. Think of the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man who defrauded a lot of people out of a lot of money. But when he met Jesus that day, what did he do? He promised to make restitution. In his repentance, he said, I will restore what I've defrauded from people fourfold. He wanted to prove, he was eager to prove himself to be faithful in following Christ. Indignation is the third result of godly grief. Only time this word is used in the New Testament, indignation is an anger that we feel that results from unfair treatment that maybe we experience or unfair treatment that we see other people experience. We feel an indignation towards that. And so what would the Corinthians have to be indignant about? Their own unfair behavior of Paul. 
They should be indignant about the way they've been treating Paul or the way that they've allowed the false teachers to speak about Paul. In Romans 12, 9, we read these words, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. That word abhor means hate it. We should hate what is evil in this world. And the point is, godly grief leads us to hate our sin, to hate what our sin does to us, to hate what our sin does to other people, but most importantly, to hate what our sin has done to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to hate it. And when you hate something, when something disgusts you, you don't play around with it. You don't mingle with it. You, you, you get away from it. Corinthians had become indignant about the way they were treating Paul. We need to be indignant about our own sin. Godly grief should cause us to fourthly fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is, is to reverence Him, and we're often careful on this point uh, to talk about. Well, this is the idea of reverencing the Lord, but, but really in this context, this has more to do with this this idea of being anxious and alarmed that our sin has offended a holy God. We need to be reminded sometimes of what God thinks about our sin. You want to know how much God hates sin, the Father hates sin, the extent of His wrath? We could talk about Sodom. We could talk about the flood. We could talk about the ransacking of Jerusalem that the prophets write about and the historians record for us in the Old Testament. But if you really want to know what the Father thinks of sin, you just go to the cross. His own Son crucified for your sin and for my sin as He bears it. It wasn't His own doing. It wasn't His own sin that He took there. It was our sin. And there's no hesitation to sacrifice. There's no hesitation in the wrath of God poured out against His own Son because of sin. On the cross, we see love and we see mercy and we see grace, but we also see judgment. And we also see wrath and holy anger. The nature of God is on full display when we go to the cross of Christ. Paul already mentioned the fifth trait back in verse 7. It's a longing, he says. The Corinthians' longing was for Paul, for, for reconciliation. They, they desired now to confess their sin. They desired now to, to seek forgiveness of their sin and to see the relationship with Paul restored. What had been broken, they, they long now to see that relationship restored. Means we, we long for this, the, the God-given means of reconciliation. We, we like to shortcut this process. We'll talk about it a little in a moment, but what are the God-given means of reconciliation? Confession of sin. Seeking forgiveness from another person. And, and, and praying that that forgiveness would be reciprocated. And that it would be granted in your life. The sixth result of godly grief is a word that, that should be familiar to you, Chuck. Mentioned it multiple times at the beginning of the service. Zeal. The Corinthians were zealous. They were passionate and, and enthusiastic now to do what was right, to follow Jesus. True repentance results in a zeal to follow Jesus in obedience. Uh, before, they were, they were zealous about their sin. They were, they were zealous about the gossip 
that people were spreading about Paul. They were zealous about the, the, the false accusations that were being made about Paul. And now they are saying, we want to be even more zealous about Jesus. We want to be even more zealous as we, as we now encourage Paul, as we build our relationship with him. They have a zeal, a passion. They're enthusiastic. Quick sidebar down in verse 12, Paul says, this is why I wrote to you. I didn't write to you primarily to point out and to punish the false teacher or, or anybody else, though that did happen. But my point was to test your devotion, to test your zeal for me, to see if you would faithfully turn and restore the friendship that we once had. Godly grief, if I could sum this one up, is ready to get to work and to do the work that it takes to restore a relationship. It's not lazy in that regard. Godly grief has a zeal that will have long conversations, repeat conversations, sit through counseling, confess, read books, memorize scripture, do whatever it takes to make those things right. The final result is a bit hard to place. The word here is to punish. The King James uses the word revenge. And so who are the Corinthians punishing? Who are they, who are they seeking to punish? What would seem within the context, those false teachers talking about church discipline he's talking about an action that needed to be taken because there was a cancer within their church and that cancer needed to be removed before it spread any further and that there was a punishment that needed to be meted out and that they were acting upon it the Corinthians godly grief had led them to say we've got to do something about the false teachers this takes us back a few weeks where he said you cannot be unequally yoked together with unbelievers and they're no longer going to do it. They're removing the unbelievers. Godly grief humbly accepts discipline from the Lord. Godly grief humbly accepts the discipline or the punishment that others might enact upon us for the sin that we've committed against them. It accepts that there are often consequences to our sin. Godly grief is willing to accept those things. Paul concludes verse 11 with this statement, at every point, you've proved yourself innocent in this matter. And that can come as a shock. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that they have never done anything wrong. That take would ignore everything that we've been talking about. But, but it's Paul's way of encouraging the Corinthians in their steps to make things right once again. They're proving themselves now by their actions to be innocent. He sees that they're, they're moving in the right direction. And I love that, that Paul includes us. We need to be the kind of people that when we see people repent and when we see them making strides to change the way they're thinking and change the way they're living, we need to encourage them. We need to get behind them and, and support them. We need to be like Paul in that regard. So that's a pretty hefty description of godly grief, but what about its counterpart? Let's talk for a moment about worldly grief. Paul doesn't have a lot to say about worldly grief, only that it leads to death not life. And so godly grief leads to life, worldly grief to death. But here's what we can deduce. Worldly grief is the antithesis or the opposite of godly grief. So everything that we've just described about a godly grief, flip it, and you're talking about worldly grief. 
Let me give you a couple of definitions. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, worldly grief is a grief for oneself. It is self-centered. It is not grief for sin against God. It grieves over consequences. It aches with embarrassment. It focuses on its own hurt, its own self-pitying. Ken Sandy goes on and he adds this, worldly sorrow means feeling sad because you got caught doing something wrong or because you must suffer the unpleasant consequences of your actions. It may be financial loss. It may be a broken marriage. It may be a damaged reputation, a nagging guilt. Any normal person will feel regretful when faced with these unpleasant circumstances. Before long, however, worldly sorrow dies away and most people begin to behave just as they did before. Instead of changing their thinking and their conduct, they simply try harder not to get caught again. This kind of limited remorse leads only to further grief. Worldly grief. I can relate to a lot of what's described there. Oftentimes I go for the counterfeit. I don't want to move through the process of godly grief. I want to shortcut it. I want to just be done with it. I want to be out from under the consequences. I don't want to feel bad anymore. And so I choose worldly grief. Esau provides us with a great example of worldly grief. You remember his story? Esau, son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. He was the firstborn. He beat Jacob out of the womb. But one day he'd been out hunting. Maybe some of our hunters are going to come back like Esau. It'd been a hard, hard week of hunting and he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't find anything. And he was starving. And he thought starving to death. And he came into the house and he said, if I don't eat something soon, I'm going to die. And Jacob said, I tell you what, I'll make you a bowl of my chili. But in exchange for it, I want the birthright. I want to be number one. And I want to inherit everything that dad and God has promised to you. And for a bowl of chili, Esau sold his birthright. Hebrews writes about that incident. The author of Hebrews takes us to that story. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, uh, you, he says that no one in is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And here's what he goes on to say. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. For, for you know that afterwards, when he desired then to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau knew worldly grief. He was grieved over what he had done. But he wasn't grieved because he sinned against Yahweh. He wasn't grieved because he sinned against his father and his grandfather and a covenant that was made with Yahweh. He was grieved and sorrowful because he lost possession. Because he lost pride. It was all about Esau. It was not about God. It was not about others. Let me flip these around for you very quickly. Worldly grief isn't eager to change. It makes excuses. 
it blames others. It refuses to, in humility, open up and own its responsibilities. That's worldly grief. It will excuse you all the way out the door. Worldly grief is eager to clear oneself, but not with changed behavior, just empty promises and more excuses. To work harder now to hide their sin from others as opposed to truly growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worldly grief isn't disgusted by sin, only the consequences of sin that are felt in that person's life. We have to be careful here. There's a lot of warnings that we see in Scripture in this particular point because every, in, in every situation that we engage in, in every situation where our sin is grieved, we are training our conscience in one direction or the other. And if I continue to choose my sin and I continue to, to excuse my sin, I am training my conscience to believe that this sin is A-OK. God doesn't have a problem with it. And before long, I don't even have a conscience in that area anymore. And a preacher can get up and preach against it. I can open up my Bible and I can read it and it goes right over my head. It goes right through my heart. Nothing grabs it because my conscience has been retrained in the wrong direction. And if we're not careful in that particular regard, the scripture even speaks of the danger of having a seared conscience. A conscience that isn't attuned to anything that God has to say. We have to recognize and we have to be able to receive instruction and be disgusted by sin and when you begin in your life to realize I'm so desensitized to this particular sin repent pray that God would give you repentance in that area of your life pray that God would restore the conscience that you need in that particular moment in that particular area for worldly grief has no fear of God it doesn't see him as a threat because it doesn't understand His holiness. It dismisses the character of our God. It doesn't believe that sin is as bad as sin is. Worldly grief only longs for reconciliation on its terms. It refuses to seek biblical forgiveness. It might apologize. Worldly grief may say, hey, I'm sorry, but it will not confess sin. It will not seek forgiveness. It will not move through the motions of what biblical reconciliation is to look like. Six, worldly grief is lazy. It doesn't desire to do the work that it takes to restore what sin is broken. Worldly grief doesn't want to get its hands dirty. I'll do the bare minimum in order to save face, to look good on the outside, but all the while, what's on the inside? Nothing but dead men's bones. You better believe the Pharisees were really good at worldly grief. And what do we know about them? Their conscience was so skewed, they missed the Messiah when he was right in front of them. Number seven, worldly grief doesn't care about righteousness and justice unless you've offended my righteousness and justice. And then I'll fight you. It's all self-centered. As we conclude, I want to consider two men representing worldly grief is Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Representing godly grief 
is Peter, also the betrayer of Jesus. On the very same night, both men turned on Jesus Christ. Both men, by their actions, denied Christ. Both were grieved by their sin. That third time when that cock crew and Peter saw Jesus through the window, he bolted in tears. Both men isolated themselves because of their grief. Judas's was a worldly grief because it didn't lead to repentance. It only led to further sin. And it only led to further destruction in his own life. He refused to take his guilt to the Father. He refused to go through the motions. He took an easy way out. Peter, his was a godly grief. It took time, didn't it? But Peter's grief led to repentance. And that repentance led to all of the things that we've described. But namely, it led to life, didn't it? Life for Peter, but life that Peter experienced and shared with thousands upon thousands of others who would then put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. So today, as you consider your own sin, I'm not here today to pick on what we call the big sins, sexual immorality and all of those things. As we consider our own sins of gossip and slander and, and our anger and our that, that bitterness that we have towards others or bitterness that we might have towards God, as we consider our own sin, does it result in worldly grief or godly grief? Are you more concerned with, with the consequences or are you more concerned with your conscience? Which category describes you best? We, we have to form good, godly habits of true biblical repentance in our day-to-day -day lives not pushing it to the side and saying, I'll deal with it later. But when we're grieved with our sin, what should we do in that moment? Father, forgive me. Because if we don't, we push it to the side or we, or we try to justify it or excuse it in our mind. We do exactly what I described a while ago where we, we, we sear our conscience, we retrain our minds. And that's a dangerous direction to go. So we have to move through the pattern that Scripture calls us to move through. If you're here today and you, you, you're stuck and you, you feel it, I've been here. You're stuck in the trap of worldly grief. And you just can't seem to get your feet from under you to, to make the turn to truly repent and follow Jesus. Then I, I, I invite you today to plead with the Father that He would grant you repentance. Repentance is a gift it is a grace, it is a mercy that he shows us and plead with him that he would give you this gift of repentance so that you can change your heart. Change the way you're thinking so that your feet can turn from the wrong direction to the right direction, from away from Jesus to following Jesus. Plead with him. How do we do that? Well, one, way we, one, way, one thing we can do is we can search the scriptures so that we can see in truth what God says about our sin right there's a power there isn't there we, we may be able to excuse it in our minds and say well it's not that big of a deal but when we open up God's word and we see 
It is a big deal. Covetousness is a big deal. The sins of my tongue are a big deal. Uh, James says it's a world of fire. I just, I just set the world ablaze with what I said and what I, the way I responded to that person. Search the scripture so that you can see in truth how your sin offends a holy God and therefore it should offend us. Another thing we can do in this area if we feel trapped in our worldly group is make it a point to confess your sins to another godly person. Find accountability. It's important that we, we regularly meet with people to confess our sins and not, not meet with people who will treat our sins as lightly as we do. But people who will call us out for it and people who will take us to God's Word and say, no, no, that's not okay. I'm not going to let you excuse yourself on this. We need to deal with this scripturally. But finally, I want to conclude with this point. I was reading in a book recently and he was about to walk, walk me through the story of the prodigal son. We know that story, right? The son who took of his father's possessions that which would have been his and he went away and he squandered it all and he found himself desperate eating what pigs eat. Just think about that, the context of that story. This is Jewish, right? You don't even eat a pig. Now he's eating things that pigs eat. He's living with them and he, he has in his mind the, the grief that finally hits him, I just, I'll go home and I'll, I'll serve my father, right? And so, so we call him the prodigal when, when actually you may flip that around. The real prodigal in this story is when he comes home and the party's thrown and the older brothers, he's pretty upset. I did what was right. He plays the part of the Pharisee in the story. But what I loved about the authors, he said, I, I don't even like calling this the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of the waiting father. So you may be here today and you may be grieved in your sin. The one thing I can assure you of is the Father's waiting. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's waiting for us. Does our sin grieve him? Yes. It grieved him to the point where he put his own son on the cross to die for it so that we might have life. And the moment you turn in humility and drop the pride and drop the excuse and drop the blaming of other people and just simply say, I have sinned, he is there ready to forgive. He is there ready to, to empower you once again to overcome those sins that have been tripping you up. Our Father is waiting for us. We sang about it as we sang this morning. Come as you are. Make the turn. One more little sub-point to that. If you're grieved by your sin... It may be a sin that you've committed against the Father alone. But it might also be a sin that you've committed against others. You don't only need to go to the Father and seek forgiveness. You need to go to the others. You need to confess your sin. 
And you need to ask them to forgive you. You need to move through the biblical pattern of reconciliation. You've got to say to them what the Scripture says about your sin. You can't whitewash it. You can't make excuses for it. And then transactionally, what do you do? You say those words, will you forgive me? And you give them time, and you give them space. That's biblical reconciliation. And so today, it may be you need to go to the Father, but that may also include going to somebody else. That's what godly grief does. Please don't buy into the substitute, the counterfeit of worldly grief, because it will only lead to greater pain in your life. You can sweep things under the rug time and time again, but eventually that rug's going to have a lump so big that you're going to trip over it and you're going to break something. So deal, deal with the sin as the Spirit brings it to your conscience and brings it to bear in your own heart. Today, don't shut the door on the Holy Spirit. Conviction's there. Respond in seeking forgiveness. I'm going to ask you to bow with me this morning. Are you grieved? You know what to do. You grieved over your sin, you know what to do. Even if you're here today and you say, I I'm, not, I'm not grieved over my sin, I'm grieved over my circumstances, then I'm telling you, you, you do the same thing. You go to the Father. You may not go with the, with the confession of sin, but you go with the confession of your need for Him. Because only He can fill those voids. Only He can comfort. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give us some, some moments of silence. And if you need to talk to somebody this morning, if you need to pray with somebody this morning, to my right is our prayer room, and Dustin and Karen are here waiting to pray with anybody who might need to pray with somebody today. Maybe you just feel the extra burden that I need to confess this sin to somebody. I need to say it out loud, not just to God, but I need to say it out loud to somebody else so that they can pray for me. Father, I ask now that your Spirit would work mightily in us. Lord, if there's sin in my life, if there's sin in the lives of any of my, my friends here today, and maybe sins that we have, we have buried under years of excuses, and, and it doesn't trigger our conscience anymore, I pray today that you would just, like a volcano, just unearth all of that. Bring grief so that we might repent, so that we might have life. Father, I pray that you would work in such a way right now. I pray that you would continue to work in such a way as we move through this week. And I pray it in Jesus' name.